Hey, everybody, welcome back to Tom Girl, where we talk all things sports, entertainment, fashion, and adventure. And tonight, we have author of the new book, Lean Out, Marissa Orr. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz All right, I'm so excited. Another Tuesday. And Marissa, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have so many questions and so much to talk about. Absolutely love. So here's her book. Lean out, everybody. Just came out last week. June 11th was the date, so you can all get it now and check it out. I want to ask first, what compelled you to write this book? So many things. <laughs> My experience in corporate America, first of all, I felt throughout the years we couldn't be honest as women about a lot of the very valid concerns and challenges we had, and that was sort of the tip of the iceberg. But really, the conversation on the gender gap and women at work has been dominated by a handful of very elite and powerful women. And Naturally, they're going to see the issues through a similar perspective, but it's been limited, and so many working women don't hear their challenges, their concerns, and their voices reflected in that conversation. So I wrote Lean Out to represent those voices and to tell a totally different side of the story mm-hmm. to women at work. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your corporate background, Facebook yes. and Google. Mm-hmm. So I worked at Google for about 13 years, and I was pretty happy that I had a great successful career. I had friends that were like family. And then I left for Facebook um, after 13 years, and I was there for about a year and a half. And that was a completely different experience than I had expected. Mm -hmm. So after being there for about 18 months, and I go into the whole story of my time at Facebook in the prologue of the book, and actually it's posted online on my Medium page, And as you know, I had a really terrible experience with being bullied by a very powerful woman at the company. It was not Cheryl Sandberg. Mm -hmm. Um, I refer to her as Kimberly in the book, the woman who bullied me. And it was just an awful experience. Uh, Awful doesn't really begin to cover Mm -hmm. it. But at the end of 18 months, and I knew it was coming, I was fired. But I had started writing the book. At that point, I was almost done with the book proposal uh, when I was fired, which was a great thing because I felt a little bit of power at a time where I could have felt very powerless. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it was really a gift because I don't think I, I knew it was the wrong place. I knew I needed to pursue my dream and write this book. But I don't think I'd ever have the courage to quit. Even though I planned mm-hmm. it every weekend, I would take <laughs> out my budget and I would say, OK, on this day, I could quit. That day would come, and I'd be like, oh, no, just another month until I get this. So being fired was really, it sounds a little corny, but I really think it was the biggest gift because it gave me that kick in the butt Mm -hmm. and to go out and and do this. So, And some of your your bully story was because you actually had an interaction with Cheryl, right, and were going to meet it, and then somebody was maybe possibly threatened by that? Yes. So Cheryl Sandberg and I, and, and again, I go into all these details in the prologue, Um, It's a really kind of interesting, people tell me it's an interesting (laughs) story. But basically, Shell Sandberg and I are from the same town in Miami. We went to the same grade schools, grew up, you know, blocks apart. But she's 10 years older than me, so I didn't know her growing up. And then she worked at Google, and I worked at Google, and then she was at Facebook. She cares about women. I'm very passionate about women. So when I started at Facebook, I'd always kind of dreamed about reaching out to her. I had, like, Mm -hmm. this little bit of a fangirl thing, like... I am so passionate about helping women, and here is, like, the goddess of helping women. And, you know, they say never meet your heroes. But anyway, I 
always wanted to reach out to her over the years, but I really just didn't have the courage. And what was I going to say to her? You know, I, I couldn't figure it out. But then my first week at Facebook, I found out she was going to be speaking at our conference the next week in San Francisco. So I worked up the nerve. I sent her a note and just said, you know, we have all these common connections. Would you have a minute just to meet in person? She was super gracious. She gave me 20 minutes on her calendar right before she took the stage at the conference. And it was like a dream. And it went so well. She even had, at one point asked me if I would mind if my story was featured in her next book, which was option B. It was like a dream come true. Mm-hmm. I walked out of that meeting and I was like, mic drop. My second Ooh. week at Facebook. <laughs> clearly, Cheryl Sandberg loves me. And clearly, we're going to be best friends. And we're going to like, I had all these crazy dreams. We're going to write a book together. And we're going to take girls trips together that she'll pay for, you know? <laughs> and it was like this crazy dream and not to spoil the ending, like none of that came true. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got back to New York after the conference, suddenly everything had shifted in my relationship with the woman that had brought me over to Facebook. And I mean, shifted is again, a light word. It was like a drastic mm. 180. And then talking to people that had worked with her before, it, it, eventually it was pieced together that she was pissed off basically that I had met with Shell mm-hmm. Sandberg my second week and she saw it as like a political power move mm-hmm. that stuff is so far from who I am it didn't even it was funny because some people were like obviously that's why she treated you that way she was pissed to me I'm perhaps a little bit naive or probably it just didn't occur to me I you know and when they said it and I talked to people that work for her they're like that's definitely it and so it was a little it was an ironic kind of weird thing the universe put together where Mm -hmm. I had started in a way writing this book years ago as a lecture series at Google and then it took me meeting Cheryl Sandberg and having this terrible experience to really give me that kick in the butt so you know it 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 was meant to be I guess yeah tell me about some of maybe those conversations you had or those fears you went through thinking because you're bringing up an argument or or not an argument a point very different than her point you know a counter argument in a lot of respects right right and I'm sure you probably had maybe some trepidation or some things you had to go through before feeling confident and putting all your heart and soul into this can you kind of tell us a little bit about that it's a great question I really, I think, had to be broken completely in order for me to be honest with myself about what it was that I wanted and who I was and what I stood for and what my voice was. And when in that experience being bullied, like my my identity was completely unraveled. I I didn't recognize myself at that place. You know, I I had this reputation at Google, I worked really hard to cultivate. I had people respected my work and they trusted me and I had friends, people liked me and it was Mm -hmm. completely the opposite at Facebook. Um, There was, you know, (laughs) there's so much I could say, but it was just terrible and it forced me into that dark place. And then what happened was, so I started thinking about what what do I want? And when I was honest with myself, I knew deep down I was never going to be truly happy in the corporate world. And maybe more importantly, I was never going to fulfill my potential as a human being. And But that's scary. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed to continue working on that lecture series and turn it into a book. I had this book inside of me, but I was very scared. I'm a single mom of three kids. I have this lucrative career at two of the you know best com- tech companies in the world. 
felt so irresponsible at, to be in that position and just leave to write. This is a crazy idea. Write some book about, you know, women in the workplace, something I have no experience doing. And, but it was, a, I mean, I had some with a lecture series, but I'd never written a book. And it was really a moment after about a year at Facebook where, you know, I, I knew something had to change. I knew, you know what, I got to write this book. But I probably did what probably every writer does when they decide they want to write a book. They do ev- everything but write the book. Like, the, <laughs> they research writing a book. Mm-hmm. I read all these things about writing a book. But I couldn't put pen to page and t- pa- pen to paper until about a year into Facebook, I was at a women's leadership breakfast. And Sheryl Sandberg was on stage and who was interviewing her about female empowerment, but Kimberly, this woman that had Mm -hmm. tormented me for a year. And she starts going on about how important it is for her to support all the women on her team. And I just, I sat there like my blood was boiling. I was like, none of this is real. And as somebody who cares very passionately about this topic and, you know, loves helping women and all things about women seeing that phoniness and that agenda being put above a genuine desire to actually help people. I mean, forget about the fact that it was, you know, so evil what she had done Mm -hmm. to me and other, other women I knew, but then to be so phony about it, it's just, I promised myself in that moment, no matter what I would write, this book like I still have the notes I took in the Mm -hmm. notebook from that conference where I was like just observe and collect and I wrote down things that were happening as a way to feel like I had power in this situation Mm -hmm. um and then I went home and the first thing I did that night was googled how to write a book and it started and started there. Mm-hmm. When you did extensive research, and I love in the book you compare a lot of the other books that are, we all know about these days. Yeah. Um, t- talk about how some of your ideas are completely different <clears throat> than like what Lean In and some of the yeah. other ones have said. Yeah. So Lean In and books of that nature pin the blame for the gender gap on culture and stereotypes. <laughs> Excuse me. And their prescriptions for success hinge on women sort of defying these forces to basically act more like men. I really believe that men and women, not all men, not all women, but a large part of men and women want and need different things at work, and that's okay. Like, instead of dismissing women's needs as a, a product of cultural oppression, we should listen to them, s- take them seriously, embrace their needs, and see what is it about the corporate structure that isn't meeting their needs, and how can we change that? And I feel the current sort of view... Um, the current sort of conventional wisdom is very dismissive of women in a way, and it purports to be very much pro-women, but on another level, it takes everything that they say they want and need and their problems and basically dismisses it in a way we never do with men. You know, history is littered with examples of women being told how to behave. Mm -hmm. To me, this all is a shiny wrapper on that same tradition because, you know, like 18% of women say they want to be a corporate executive versus 36% of men. To dismiss, to say that the reason women don't want to be a corporate executive as much as men is because they're culturally conditioned to say that, it's something we never say with men. Mm -hmm. Like, there's only... 
5% of, you know, corporations that have female CEOs. And maybe 5% of tech engineers are, are women. But we never talk about the fact that less than 10% of nurses are men or less than 10% of teachers are men. Like, is an engineer more worthy to society than a nurse? Like, I, I don't think so. The nurses I've ever had have been, like, virtual heroes. And so... To me, it's a value judgment, and I think it's a value judgment that undermines women instead of celebrating them. I think one of the points you make in the book, too, that I resonated a lot with me was the sum about some of the motivational factors in corporate mm. America. Like you, yeah. you advance, you get management, you're kind of expected or you, yes. you look, you're looked different upon if you don't want that. But if you do that, you kind of get pulled into, um, like you said, a minimal like pay increase that doesn't make that much difference like after a certain level. Mm-hmm. But then you lose some of the like I think you talked about standing up at a spe- speaker and asking, well, maybe a woman wants flexible hour or something else and they thought that they totally shut you down yeah yeah which is a whole separate thing (laughs) that I talk about in terms of today because a few powerful women control the conversation if you disagree it's like you're shunned or scorned and so women mostly keep their opinions to themselves which is unfortunate but that's a whole other topic so what you're referring to is the whole uh, motivation and reward element which I go into a lot of detail about in the book and basically in corporate America once you get past a certain salary the only thing left motivating people to climb higher and higher is power, more power over more people. Because, you know, if you get a $20,000 raise when you're making 50K, that's life-changing. But if you get a $30,000 raise and you're already making 300000 it's like nothing. So what motivates people to climb higher and higher? It's power. And research is very conclusive on the idea that Not everybody is similarly rewarded by that type of power, which is like professional authority, like basically the ability to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it seems crazy. This is a concept we teach our kids. We learn in kindergarten. Everybody likes different things, right? But at work, there's just this one thing. Obviously, the winners are going to be the ones who like that one thing most (laughs) and It's true, like personality research and behavioral sciences, it shows like people that feel rewarded by that kind of power are a subset of the population. And those are the ones that end up being corporate Mm -hmm. CEOs. So to me, like a diverse set of leaders depends on a a diverse set of rewards. And as somebody like me, I talk a lot about in the book, a joke about personality test we had to take at Google mm-hmm. and I, I came the out as like and a the green reds, yeah, yeah. Yep. and it was like earth green I was like the hippie and I make the joke that in the corporate world that's like akin to being a sex offender it's like oh the <laughs> hippies in the room nobody <laughs> takes them seriously but one thing that I learned in that session which was so life-altering to me in terms of my perspective is that I'm the kind of person that uh, values relationships um, more so than like authority, you know, those two things are in tension with each other. You can't love both. So the corporate world, and in that offsite, I said, well, what are the colors of our executive team? And they were all red, which was the opposite of the hippie. It's like a Gordon Gecko hippie kind of continuum. And they were like the people that are competitive and love power and are focused more on results and relationships. And they were all, our senior executive team is like all red. And I was like, oh, well, this really changes my perspective on <laughs> diversity because the winners of the corporate game are 
they're all going to look the same. That's a zero-sum competition for power. The same type of people are going to win every time. So that whole idea of motivation and reward is such an elementary idea. Everybody likes different things. Like, Mm -hmm. not everyone feels rewarded by that. The problem is we consider people like me that aren't rewarded in the corporate world, it's looked at as weakness. That's the real issue that nobody ever talks about. Mm -hmm. And at Google... You can only be promoted past a certain level if you start managing bigger and bigger teams. Well, to me, that was like a punishment. I didn't want to do that. I'm creative. I wanted to dig in and solve problems, and I wanted to widen my impact. I I wanted to work on bigger problems, and I could have had, and I did have the same impact as my peers were managing large teams. But over time, I realized, oh, they're not going to change that policy because they interpret my um, indifference toward that as a lack of ambition, which made me feel a little bit like a defect or something, which is another reason I wrote this book Mm -hmm. because it's crazy how many women have written to me to say thank you for putting my own thoughts and feelings into words that I didn't quite know how to express. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so that is maybe a longer answer than than you were. No, because that was one of my favorite parts of the book because because I similar I have been through that, so I totally am one that related to that. And thank you for writing it because it is hard when you go in there and you are trying to form like you call it. You know, you don't not your distaste for a promotion, but you mm-hmm. don't want to be promoted to that. And but you still are competitive and have ambition and want things. But then you actually ended up coming around to you because you turned you didn't get the promotion, but then you ended up getting. Money, money that you yeah. asked for money. So, yeah, I make the joke in the book, but it's not really a joke. That all I really wanted at work was money and compliments. Like I wanted to people <laughs> to tell me I was like doing a great job, and I wanted that feedback, and I wanted money. Of course, I wanted to do meaningful like things that are interesting. I all that aside, like the incentives to me were more of like the money and the mm-hmm. compliments. Incentives is slightly different than motivation, but anyway. Um, so when I finally own the fact that I didn't want to manage people, and I turned down the the promotion. I might be getting the details slightly wrong. Um, There's several stories about this in the book, but the point is, when I owned it, Marissa, you don't want to manage people. That's okay. That doesn't mean you lack ambition. It doesn't mean you're not as good, but you want money, and you deserve it. You have the, you know, you're in the highest score bracket of the team. So I went to my manager. It was hard, but I said, look, I don't want the promotion, but I really want money. <laughs> and she's like, well, that's not how it works. But then several weeks later, our managing director sent me an email that they gave me a huge part of their discretionary budget, more than they ever do, to me as a bonus to compensate for the lack of promotion because he said, you know, we really value you and we want you to be happy. And it kind of, like, it dawned on me, like, oh, I asked for what I wanted, mm-hmm. but first I had to know what it was that I wanted. And I didn't want that promotion. I didn't want to start managing a big team. So in order to get what I want, I first had to be honest with myself about what it was that I wanted. And that's another thing that I really hope to, you know, get the message across with this mm-hmm. book is like, be honest with yourself. Are you just comparing your, you know, situation with your peer and they were getting a promotion so you want one because I was fighting because I was that part I was doing that all the time I was fighting for these promotions I didn't even want Mm -hmm. um so that was yeah I think that was the story you're talking about right yeah yeah Yeah. exactly yeah Yeah. so that your advice would be to get clear what other advice for people who maybe are are stuck in that same situation as you were so and I want to make it clear too it's a good question because some people misinterpret what I mean by lean out and 
lean out does not mean quit your job. It doesn't mean take the your foot off the pedal of your career or reduce your it means none of that. It really means the spirit of it is leaning out of anyone else's story or idea of who you are and what your career should be and frankly what success looks like. So my advice and I devote a chapter to this in the book is really defining success on your own terms and perhaps using well-being as the metric instead of winning. Because with well-being as the metric for your success, you're no longer comparing salary and, you know, position on the ladder, that, and, which is another thing I go into is we measure women on these two very narrow dimensions, money and position on a corporate ladder. Like, that is how we measure female progress in this country. And to me, that's insane because, like, we, you know, you mentioned briefly earlier, a lot of women value, like I would have traded, you know, 30 grand in salary. I was making a good salary. So I realized it's a privileged position Mm -hmm. to be in, but I would have traded it so that I had more flexibility and could work from home. Um, You can't, comparing people by money on the dimension of income tells you nothing about which one is more Mm -hmm. successful. You know, if you get the corner office and you sit there sad and alone, can you really call that success. So one of the ways that I propose we address all of this, stop measuring women against men in terms of what they have and money and power and really start looking at well-being. Because when you look at well-being, to me, it directs resources and energy to the women who need it most. Like there's so many women in this country that need that all these resources being poured into helping sort of these elite women in the corporate world climb higher towards something they don't want. (laughs) And Mm. so if we can change the metrics and what we're measuring, to me, the women in this country that need it most, the money, you know, the time, the attention, the resources go there. So there still is now a smaller percentage of women as CEOs in this company or or in this country and, and still kind of a corporate environment that is geared mm-hmm. towards men. Do you think that will change? And what would more of this kind of environment you're envisioning look like? Yeah. So I think, I don't know if it will change, but if we're looking historically as a clue, no, because it hasn't <laughs> changed in 20 years, despite the enormous amount of resources. I mean, what social issue has had the resources and the attention that this one has that has literally not budged in 20 <laughs> years. And if women don't want those positions, I don't know, like, should we be trying to get them stuff they don't, they don't want? So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I struggle with this because I don't really care about corporations. I care about women (laughs) and the people that work there. And so I care about women being more fulfilled and like honored and celebrated in this world more so than I care about getting them into positions that they've said that they don't want because they don't offer anything that, you know, (laughs) contributes to their happiness and well-being, which sounds like a revolutionary concept. But um, (laughs) I do think that it's very hard to change existing power structures. It's just almost impossible. But I do, I'm really optimistic when I see the rise of like these female entrepreneurial communities. I'm a bu- part of a bunch of Facebook groups where these women have left that world to find meaning and sort of live life on their own terms and get the flexibility they need to be happy. And these networks of women who come together, help each other. I mean, 
thousands and thousands of people. One woman posts a question about, you know, how do I manage my social media? And like hundreds of people reply. And it's just such, um, I, I think that perhaps the change that we'll see in the future of work and women at work will come from that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the growth of, of these female um, based entrepreneurial communities versus just like redesigning the corporate structure. And in the book, I do offer a ton of um, there's a whole chapter devoted to like what would need to change. But then I follow it up with, but if it doesn't, here's what you can do, <laughs> to, you know, really yeah. think about your well-being if you're stuck and unhappy in that world, because there are, are ways that you can change your perspective on it. Mm-hmm. What are tools that you used to get yourself unstuck or to get this, get your courage up to, to create this? Oh, gosh. Um, my experience <laughs> at Facebook, like, straight up turned me into a Buddhist because <laughs> I had to find a way to manage my emotions. And, um, you know, like we said, I got three kids. Like, I got a I don't have the luxury to, like, wallow every day. I needed something. Mm-hmm. So I did start to, like, figure out you know, in those m- moments where I was like being humiliated, trying, or I, I hesitate to say where I was humiliated. I don't want to give it that much power, mm-hmm. but frankly, I'm being honest, I was. What, how do I control myself and not give this person so much power over me? And meditation really helped. I feel like it's a cliche, th- cliche thing to say these days, but I started, I promised myself, like, I'll just do four minutes a day. I promise that was like, I'll start small. And it was hard at first. I could never find the time. I used to go into mm-hmm. the stall, the bathroom stall at Facebook and with a, my set of timer on my phone just to keep my promise. But then slowly I saw that it was really helping. And I, I now do it for a few years, a couple of two years now I've been doing it every morning religiously. So that was a really important thing that I, it just gives me perspective when I get so I don't know. You know how you, yep. you kind of just you drown in the, the you get yep. so dr- you drown in that detail. You just need someone to, you know, mm. something to pick. Oh, there's another thing I write about in the book that I do, which is I imagine myself at 80 and I have yeah. created this whole character <laughs> in my head. Her name is Doris. <laughs> and when I picture her, she actually looks nothing like me, but I'm a huge fan of the Golden Girls, so I feel like it's like a, it's some combination of all of them, <laughs> and she's just like sitting, wearing her muumu, drinking, a, you know, has a glass of scotch on a porch somewhere, sunny and beautiful. And I talk, so it sounds so silly, but from it gives me perspective yep. when I imagine her and she's talking to me, and it's like she's just like chill the f out, none of this matters, you know. And it that's another tool that find strangely helpful Mm -hmm. when I get stuck in those moments and you know I am creative and I love stories so maybe that works for me because like I'll create this whole scene in my head with Doris and then I realize (laughs) how silly I'm being and you know, so that's another tool. No, I think it's great because, I mean, we all do that now. You look back at, you know, what you tell yourself like 15 years before when you were so consumed with whatever it was that is now not a big deal at all. And you wish you just would have known, you know? Exactly so. right. And actually, I wrote an article about this on my Medium blog about my son when he, was, he used to be afraid of E.T. And, yeah. like, he wouldn't go in my bathroom for, like, a year because he was afraid E.T. was going to be waiting for him in the bathtub. But the problem was <laughs> that was the only bathtub in our house. So one time I, like, lost it, like, on him, and I was just like, E.T.'s not real. Why are you afraid of something not real? And it hit me. I was like, oh, 
just like I'm afraid of writing this book and I'm afraid of writing anything for what people will say about me. You know, it's like, that's not real either. It's mm-hmm. like, I have perspective to know, I've lived long enough to know E.T.'s not going to be in that bathtub. But Doris has lived long enough to know there's nothing to be afraid of with writing. <laughs> so it, it actually, that sort of experiences, I think, with birth Doris. Uh-huh. <laughs> Love Doris. What were there, were there any surprises or things you learned about yourself along the process of writing this book? Oh, so much. <laughs> I had to literally change my entire personality to write mm-hmm. this book because I, for so long, I'm in the corporate world, it's very comfortable. It's very safe and whatever. But I'm also, I have like this streak in me. I'm sort of a procrastinator. I don't, I didn't have a lot of discipline at all about things I'm sort of like instant gratification impulsive my brain is very chaotic you know messy creative none of these things work in writing a book like these are not (laughs) things that like you know at all help you it's the opposite you need so much discipline so it's almost like I learned all these things about me that I didn't see very clearly that needed to be changed when Mm -hmm. it comes to writing a book like I read everything I could about discipline and I understood like, oh, I need to create routines. And so I learned, but I also learned that, you know, I have more courage than I ever really thought that I could ever have. So um, I would say, yeah, that's it's weird. I feel weird saying that, <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel courageous. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You should. That's <laughs> what has been, how has this week been now that the book's been out and you've been getting like responses? It is insane. Um, I was on the plane yesterday out to LA. Like this is a dream come true for me. I will admit, I don't, I've never told anyone except my friends this, but I did have a vision board <laughs> that I put mm-hmm. together like a year ago. Like I was so I had so much anxiety. I was like, let me just picture it. And, like, all these things are happening, and it's the dream come true. And yesterday on the plane, a friend, somebody sent me a picture from the Minneapolis airport, and the bookshelf in the front of the airport bookstore um, is just two books on a shelf, and it was mine and Michelle Obama's. And the feeling was indescribable. Now, I turned to the guy. I never talked to anyone on planes. I'm actually kind of, I was telling you this before the interview, a little shy and introverted and I turn to this guy next to me and I go, I just have to show you something. <laughs> and this poor guy, like, I was like, look, that's my book. It's, I felt like I won the Oscar of books. Like, yeah. I am next to Michelle. This is insane. So it's been amazing. It's also very draining because, you know, I've been home in my pajamas writing by myself <laughs> for two years. And, you know, now it's kind of like the total opposite. Mm-hmm. But it's a dream come true. It's just it, also exhausting. What um, did it make you? Are, are you hungry to write another one and uh, do a lot more? Or are kind you... of, because now <laughs> I never thought so. Because writing a book is excruciating. It is harder than I ever imagined. And I used to joke with people, like, don't ever write a book. It's, like, the worst thing you could ever do. But now that it's done and it's out, it's kind of like childbirth, I guess. It's like you have that baby and it's crying all the time. You never sleep. And then you're like, I'm never having another one. And then the baby grows and it's cute. And you're like, I'll have another one. So it's kind of – I feel like that's what's happening with the book because now I'm, like, in all the details of, like, logistics and everything. And I'm like, God, I miss that creative – you know, that Mm -hmm. that 
writing every day. It's it's like maybe I'll go back to it. Yeah. Do you get fascinated in all the, in the research aspect of it too? Oh like we, my gosh, mm-hmm. yes. I could go down such rabbit hole. I do go down such rabbit holes, and I think you you know if you read the book, you can see I did. There's so much research mm-hmm. in there, and it's not in a boring way. I want to clarify. It's like sounds like it could be boring, but it's used to support like the stories and the yeah. points of my stories. Yes, I can go. It sounds like you can too. Yeah, I mean, that's I made me want to go read some of the other ones because I haven't read the other ones just to to contrast what you're talking about because I resonated so much with this. But I think there was the one where it listed like all the we had a bunch of mistakes that that women make, and you're like, I was appalled, and I was like, Yes, it was. um, why night? Why nice girls still don't get the corner yes, office? Yeah. One hundred and thirty-three crappy things. Like mm-hmm. no, one hundred and thirty-three mistakes women <laughs> make in their career. But I, I'm like that too. In fact, um, I usually, if if I'm reading a book I really like and it refers to another book as research, I usually go buy that book and read it too. And I kind of get into that whole rabbit hole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I relate to that. What are some things that you really want people to take away from this book or at least start thinking about? One of them really is about listening to women and embracing their needs and wants instead of dismissing them. That's a big one. But I think more than that, what I really want is for women to feel heard and understood and feel like they they understand their own strengths in a way that they didn't for reading the book because it gave them a new perspective. Um, and I opened the book with a quote that I feel really captures the entirety of it, which is, you know, feminism isn't about making women stronger because women are already strong. It's about changing the world the way the world perceives that strength. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's true on the outside. And for us as women is really understanding, you know, the power we wield in this, in this Mm -hmm. world. So I really just hope women Mm -hmm. feel, you know, they connect to the message that resonates and they feel heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love, I had one like in your way forward, um, that you'd said you want people to figure out how you figured out how your needs weren't being met at work Mm -hmm. and what you can do to change about it and to to, to change your life. And then I liked your quote said, real empowerment is about knowing who you are and how to fill your unique needs and desires. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I think that was a good answer to the question you asked earlier Mm -hmm. too. Like what can women do if they're, you know, unhappy in their careers and it's really about knowing what you need, which is not easy. It's a journey. And then also understanding and recognizing that in a lot of ways, our institutions are limited in their ability to fulfill Mm -hmm. our needs. So it's upon us as individuals, women, men, whoever, to fill those gaps. And that's really what empowerment is about. I realized I had so many needs that weren't being met. And the onus was on me to figure out how to meet them outside of these institutions. And that gave me a sense of power. I know this might sound basic, but what are are there any tools that maybe you talk about in your workshops or things that like that you would tell somebody to do? Like you said, you made a you have a vision board. Would you recommend vision boards or like making lists of what makes you happy? I don't know. What are some of the tools that you might recommend to people to try? Yeah. So I think it really depends on the individual. Like my best friend Sarah would never make a vision board ever. Like it is so <laughs> not in her personality. But she loves lists more than anything. Lists are like her heroine. So like for her, you know, perhaps a list that she could like cross stuff out and get that shot in the vein. But she um, she and anyone else, I guess, would really help me. I know this sounds... Uh, understanding 
personality is really huge. You know, there's all this really easily readable books now on the science of personality. Some of it's fluff and BS, but the core principles underneath to me were super helpful because it gave me sort of a framework to understand myself. So as that green, earth green and that personality um, offsite, you know, exercise, it helped me understand the kinds of things that I want and need. It like literally was a detailed guide. Now, obviously, not all of that stuff is going to be perfect. It's meant to be just sort of a compass, not literal directions mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. what to do. But that was a big start for me and, and, and really learning like the big five personality traits and what those are, what they, what the categories are, because it tells you a lot about what drives people, including yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any last words of advice or thoughts to you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah, I, I just buy my book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll get to that next. We'll say I'm, where we can I'm get it. I'm totally kidding. That was a joke anyway, sort of. <laughs> um, I guess really the main message of the book is own who you are. And so many times we think there's something wrong with us when really we're just in the wrong environment or system or we're playing the wrong game. And as soon as I stepped out of that game, once I realized I was playing it and I stepped out, put myself into a different, you know, environment where it wasn't win-lose and I could sort of shine, like everything changed, but I had to own who I was first. So Mm. I would say own who you are and tell the truth. Mm. Great. Now, where can everybody... (laughs) That was a joke. I had Anyway, where can people buy your book and how can they follow you on social media? So it's on Amazon now. You can order it, can, uh, Kindle version, hardcover, Audible. It's all there. Um, it's in bookstores, Barnes & Noble, in Barnes & Noble, some airports, Airport. like next to Michelle Obama. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Marissa Beth Orr. So my middle name is Beth, B-E-T-H. Um, I'm on Instagram, Marissa Bethor also, and then on Medium, where that article about my son with E.T. and the prologue of the book actually is at Marissa Orr. So you can find all that there. And beyond writing, you're also being oh, your motivational speaking. speaking. Yeah. So uh, part of why I wrote the book, too, is I love speaking to gr- audiences and groups and working with people. So I'm doing a lot of speaking now, and that's all at my site, MarissaOr.com, conferences, like corporate things. Um, women's leadership stuff. So you can find all stuff on my site. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. And like I said, I loved it so much and it was so insightful for me. So everybody pick up a copy of this. You will love it. Thank you so much. (laughs) This was so fun. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, that's it for this week. I was your host, JJ Jurgens. We'll see you again next Tuesday for another fun show. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.